Well, welcome everybody to the Pierce Point Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Luke chapter 2. And just like every other chapter in the Bible, there are a thousand things to talk about. <laughs> so why don't you lead us off on something that you're, uh, you're intrigued by there, Bunny? I think the first thing was probably something uh, that was pretty common. There's not a lot of wow factor in this. But these people were just going about their everyday lives. They were going to have a census taken. It'd be like, hey, I was going to the grocery store the other day, and uh, you know, I uh, came across this angel. And uh, but uh, it it is it's very interesting because once again, as we talked about in yesterday's podcast, Luke is a he is a detail guy, and he talks about the things that seem uh, common to us, but he wanted us to have that detail. So <clears throat> that's probably the first thing that stood out to me, that that he tells that, that Joseph and uh, Mary were on their way to register for a census of yeah. all things. Yeah, so that, that census is interesting. I, I'm, I've not got a lot of detail on the census, but what is fascinating, and, and it's debated by scholars left and right, like they're, they're trying to find the historical... Uh, placement of this particular census. So lots of heady debate there. But you mentioned that Luke is a detail guy. And what I find amazing is that the start of Luke 2 is about the least detail we get from Luke. So he says in verse 1, he says, now in those days... But in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, here's what he says. He says, John the Baptist preaches now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar when Pontius Pilate was governor. Like, you get this massive amount of detail. Now, Luke is generally that guy. Yeah. But there's something about this that Luke just says, what I want you to know was that it was in those days, mm-hmm. <laughs> in this time. And so um, I love that he can be a very detailed guy. And yet he doesn't have to give us too many details. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm personally a guy who, if you bog me down with too many details, you lose me in the story, right? Yeah. And so he gives us the details when we need them, and he gives us those general things when we don't. I don't know. That was just something that I yeah, observed on the that's detail cool. front. I like one of the things when he talks about, uh, it, it, he gives us an important little bit that we're we will gloss over and not see if we're not careful. And he says that in verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. That's an important piece because we know that through the house, the family, the lineage of David is where the Christ, where the Messiah is going to come from. So that's an important piece. And I think that was intentional for Luke to put that in there because it becomes an important piece to the Jews as they were looking for the Messiah through that line of David. Very much. And adding to that, um, it is this census was a census that was for taxation purposes and not military purposes. We we know that from history, but Mm -hmm. the the census um, would have was done in those days uh, primarily on the man. So that was why Joseph went up from Galilee to the city of Nazareth. And commentators talk from all kinds of angles, but they basically say Mary probably went with him just because the state she was in, she was pregnant, she didn't want to be alone. There's a lot of conjecture mm-hmm. about it, but it's mm-hmm. a fascinating thing. Mm-hmm. I think in the in the in the line of the story, 
as I see this, and we start to get down, I'm going down to uh, verses uh, starting around verse verse 6, uh, and wh- while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, you know, if I were writing the story of the Savior of the world coming, I think I would have made it a little more noble, and I would have made it a little more uh, pomp and circumstance. But I think that I think that the idea of this is, as we've learned, if everyone listened to the little video at the start of this, it was that Jesus was about to turn the world order on upside down. And change, and you've said many times, uh, Christianity many times uh, is or should be a race to the back of the line, not to the front of the line. So that's an important piece because if we were doing this, if I was doing this, I would have probably made it uh, a little more grandiose. Yeah, absolutely. You 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 imagine pomp and to do uh, at a, at the entrance of a king, and yet what we see here is. The coming to all the lowly. He's he's born in a stable. He's born uh, in a feeding trough. He's the first appearance. Where we're going to see in the next uh, in the next verse is that he appears to shepherds first. And there's a whole lot to be discussed on mm-hmm. shepherds. But um, it, it just doesn't seem like this is very royal. No, no. <laughs> but very cool. I would have had him have a bed that was something other than maybe a place where animals eat from. <laughs> That's exactly but, right. And then trumpets and all of this yes, other stuff. But yes. no, we've got this. There's another strange uh, image that has taken root, I guess, in the mythology of the story over over time. And that is that um, this idea that there was no room for them in the inn meant that there was some disgruntled inn worker that just didn't want to give any room for anybody or that or that all of these things were happening. It's actually simply that that there was no they were in such an urgent place that she needed to have a baby that there was no place for them to have the baby mm. except for in this cave in the side of a hill that happens to be for animals. So it, it, when you paint it through that picture, I think what you what you come away with is there's a little bit of a, they're on their way to get to the census for the census, and all of a sudden she goes into labor. I think that's more the accurate picture. But mm-hmm. it seems to be yes, that's, and I, I think as we go through this, and it, it talks about that so, uh, other than Joseph and Mary, to some of the first folks that were told about this were shepherds. There again, I I would think. Uh, I would think that God would have gone to the Pharisees or gone to the priests or the elders in the church of that day and would have told them. But here's an interesting concept that I see in this, Nathan, that I think would, you know, God had told them for hundreds and thousands of years that this was going to happen. And as Jesus said to them many times, they should have known. They should have yes. known I was I was the one that was to come. So I think the fact there again that God chose to turn the whole system upside down and choose to go to lowly shepherds and proclaim the birth of Christ, it says something about what God was trying yeah. to do there. Yeah, I think that it's not only prophetic, but I think we're seeing yet again um, an indictment 
mm-hmm. on God's behalf, uh, on you know, towards the world from God because we've missed the point. We he should be obvious to us, but we're missing it. I love uh, the concepts that I read about shepherds. Um, the idea of shepherds just being guys that were of a humble origin is true. It's true in a sense, but here's a here's an interesting take uh, from a commentary that I have. It says, one should not romanticize the occupation of shepherds. In general, shepherds were dishonest and unclean according to the standards of the law. They represented the outcasts and the sinners for whom Jesus came. Such outcasts were the first recipients of the good news. Now, if you paint it in that picture, if that is true... Uh, based on the context, it really does start to shape what you just said. And that is, nobody else was listening. So God came to those who really needed mm-hmm. his help, these these people that were the outcasts of society. So just an interesting thought yeah. on shepherds. The, and, and for them to receive the the good news and the great joy that the angels spoke to them about and for them to to do exactly you know and I'm, I'll, we'll, we'll come back to, to this but jumping over to to verse 15 th- they didn't doubt they immediately it says that they that that they uh, didn't doubt what they had seen and heard and they quickly went to find Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they didn't take any time to say, well, wait a minute. Now, you know, this could have been uh, something we ate that caused us to see all these angels, or this could have been something. <laughs> no, they, they, they believed it, and they quickly acted on it. I think that's a lesson for us today. If, if, if we know that God says something, and there again, it's probably, I don't, know, I don't know if God will send an angel, but he's sent his word for sure. Yeah. And if, we, if God is using his word to tell us to do something, we should probably quickly obey. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the observations that I see from chapter one to chapter two is we have, we have a, a form that's happening here. We have an angel's appearance. We have a response of fear. We saw this in both Elizabeth and we saw this in Mary. Um, we have a word of assurance or reassurance, like calm down <laughs> mm-hmm. to the shepherds. We have a divine message that comes to Elizabeth. It was you're going to have a son, John the Baptist. To Mary, it's you're going to have a son. He is going to be the savior of the world. And to the shepherds, it is, this is the joy for all people. This is the savior of the world. And then there's a sign given to everybody, you know, for their understanding. Um, There's certain things about John's coming that is going to confirm this truth. There's certain things about Jesus's coming, Mary's birth, uh, Mary's pregnancy with Jesus that is going to confirm this. And with the shepherds, it is go and you're going to see. There's going to be a confirming sign to this. All of this happens. But the one thing that's interestingly absent in this part of the story is that unlike Zachariah's uh, questioning of, or doubting of God and Mary's wondering how it's going to come about, the shepherds, just as you just said, the shepherds don't say anything. They just go. They quickly go. They went. So here's what I'm thinking about this. My thought is, yeah, when you're faced with the miraculous, <laughs> when this kind of situation happens, it's pretty staggering. Now, I'm not trying to make a formula out of that because we see that Elizabeth, Mary, and the shepherds all react differently. Mm-hmm. But in this case, we have the same 
the same series of things happening. And yet instead of them going, you know, raising their hand and saying, hey, angel boy, I got a question for you. <laughs> they just go. They like just... you said, I mean, they they got out of Dodge yeah. and went. So I think it is, I think it's interesting that, that, that the angels all in all three of those instances, it was the angels who proclaimed uh, this, but they were so very clear. If you look at verse 11, for today in the city of, of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. We read over that and we read over it at Christmas time and we, and it loses, it may in our culture lose some of its meaning. These people were looking for the Savior. We'll, yes. you'll, we'll see later on, and you talked about it a couple, three weeks ago, the consolation of Israel during the Advent time. There were people that were waiting, waiting for God to send the Savior. When, when this, was, this, was a, this was a proclama- uh, proclamation that had been thousands of years in yes. the making. He's here. Christ the Lord has been born. Absolutely. So um, to piggyback on the Advent series, I, I'm always marveling at this good news of great joy that is for all the people, that this message, right? You know, this is good news of great joy that is for all the people. I just, I always want to to draw people's attention to the fact that the gospel is, in fact, for all people. It does not say that this is good news of great joy for some people. It's good news of great joy for all people. Uh, Confirming yet again in, in the New Testament when we see the apostle tell us that that uh, Paul tell us that God wants that none should perish, or maybe it's Peter. My mind's not working right now, but uh, that he wants none should perish, but all come to everlasting life. This this good news is for all people. Mm-hmm. And then when we look at the micro level of this, and we realize he appears first to shepherds, all people means all kinds of people, all walks of life, all kinds of sin, all kinds of brokenness, all kinds of mm-hmm. of mess, you know. Um, I'm remembering, and I believe it was the, the, um, the Bible Project's first video that we watched yesterday, that uh, Jesus comes and he's come to shepherds who were not well looked upon. But at the same time, he came, he came to uh, Levi, he came to Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew was pretty wealthy. He wasn't poor according to their world standards, but he sure was hated by everybody because he was crooked, because he was backwards. Jesus has come that all might repent and believe in him. It's good news mm-hmm. for all the people, unless you just don't want to hear it. Yeah, and That's a whole different story. The The other piece of this in verse 14 that really is, uh, I think, should, uh, should uh, pique your interest is that when, when the angels say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, mm-hmm. there's, some, there's some scholarly debate about those, that, the last part of that, whether that says in whom his favor is shown or, or things of, like that. But the most scholars agree that, the, and we're reading from, I think we're both using the uh, New American Standard Bible, with, that says, with whom he is pleased, they believe that's the most accurate translation from the earliest texts. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know, there again, this is another place where I think it's easy to read over something and say, 
Did, did did you hear that God is pleased with man? Absolutely. He's pleased with man. Absolutely. And 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 he would he's so he he has sent his son to be their 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 savior, but he is pleased with with man. Yeah. So that's an amazing piece that, that I, I I I don't want to miss. Truly beautiful, truly beautiful. So if we skip down um at least, you know, my next observation comes where Jesus is presented in the temple. Um there's a couple of scenarios that really kind of play together here. We see that on the uh, after eight days had passed before his circumcision, um, his name was then called Jesus, a name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Um, so uh, the the idea here is that Jesus, according to even Galatians, he was born under the law. He's born under the law. He's mm-hmm. he's circumcised just like everybody else uh, in the Jewish world. Then uh, it talks about the days of of their purification. The debate there comes to whether it was uh, Jesus and Mary's purification or whether it was Joseph and Mary's purification. But here's what I think is amazing about uh, regardless of what the purification is. The next couple of verses talk about that the male... Uh, who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And then verse 24, it says, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now this is a, a sacrifice that is offered, but that is actually a contingency in the sacrifice. And the contingency was for those who didn't have a lot of money. Mm. So it paints the picture that Mary and Joseph are from very humble Uh, origins, that they don't have a lot of money. It also confirms another thing, and that is the gifts that come by the Magi. The Magi had not come yet. And why had the Magi not come yet? If they had, they could have offered the lamb that was required by the law Mm. in its standard form to for this particular sacrifice. But this was a contingency in the law for those who were um, who were in poverty. I also think it's amazing that these sacrifices talk about uncleanliness. And even though we have Mary being righteous, you know, Mary being this really upstanding, amazing person in the scripture, she's still one who has to uh, have her sins atoned for mm-hmm. according to the Levitical law at the Absolutely. time. So it's a powerful Absolutely. picture. And and I know that we've we both were had narrowed in on Simeon, but before we do that, I want, wanted to make one more note on the shepherds. I, I, I see verse 18 and all of the things that the shepherds told folks. And uh, verse 18 says, all who heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Shepherds were, had told them a pretty detailed account of what they had seen and heard. And, but Mary, it says, treasured all these things pondering in them in her heart. You'll see that statement about her a lot throughout mm-hmm. this the the book of Luke because many things happened that caused her to treasure something in her heart and to ponder it. I can just imagine. And then the song comes to my mind, Mary, did you know? I wonder if she pondered those things. Yeah. And 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 it, did did she know what this was about and we'll see that. But on to Simeon. I know you've got a yeah. lot of cool stuff about Simeon. Yeah. So if if we roll down here, we're dealing with here we go. Let's get in our um, in our passage here. 
So verse 25, and there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. We're back to these statements of people mm. where they were righteous and devout. Um, and as we learned from yesterday with, with Zacharias and Elizabeth, they were righteous and devout according to the law. Mm-hmm. So these people were, they were pious. They were faithful in doing what God had asked them to do. Now, Simeon in particular, is said to be looking for the consolation of Israel. And this really is the saving or the deliverance of Israel. And there's a supernatural promise that has been given to him. Uh, Number one, it says the Holy Spirit was upon him, which seems to give credibility to, uh, you know, Simeon's Simeon's declaration of who this child is, right? So if the Holy Spirit is upon him and he says that this is the Lord's Christ, that's a big deal. Verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that was resting upon him Mm -hmm. that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, I would love to have those moments where I felt like God said, hey, by the way, before this happens, you're going to see mm-hmm. this part of my story. And Simeon's one of those guys. He, he literally says, you're not going to die yeah. until the Messiah comes. That guy had a, that guy had a huge uh, blessing in his yes. life to say, yes. I get to at least see the Messiah. It, it just uh, reiterates again that God was pleased with man. Yes. He, he couldn't have been more pleased with this Simeon. And, and uh, it, it says that, that he was righteous and devout. That, the, the word devout in the, in the Greek means something that I didn't, I didn't understand completely. It's, it, it's, they use two words, circumspect and cautious. Mm, Interesting cool. words, but a devout man who clearly was doing what God told him to do. So much so that God allowed him to see the Christ before he died. That's an amazing piece. Certainly, we can believe that God was pleased. We could spend a lot of time on just that idea of being cautious, because I think righteous or devout people are a people who are, um, to use another phrase, they're they're the people who are slow to speak and quick to listen. Mm -hmm. They're cautious about the decisions they make, and and they want to make sure that they're doing well, Mm -hmm. because that's what I think that's what God's people want to do. So then verse uh, 27, and he came in the spirit, in in the spirit, into the temple. That sounds like a very charismatic phrase, but you know, he came (laughs) in the spirit, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. Uh, It's this image that Simeon is saying, I can die now and I can die happy. I can die in peace. I can go, I can go about the rest of my days, however long that might be, because I have seen the fulfillment of the Mm -hmm. promise you made, right? And so he says, I can depart in peace according to your word, verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And then we're back to this all thing, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. You made this displayed to everyone. And who is that display for? A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. There's a lot that probably could be said on that, mm-hmm. but I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on It's on that an area. amazing piece that, that, that he says something that it's, it, for years and years had been a, uh, 
a concern with the Jewish people was that 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 the Christ was coming for for Israel, and it's clear that that's that 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 he was. But and and the promise was given to them. But Simeon says a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He is he's saying so. I'm I'm glad first of all because Amen. you know that's us and, uh, uh, and 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 for the glory and the glory of your people Israel. I I think that uh, uh, sometimes we miss the fact in living in our world in this day and time in our culture uh, as we as we've said many times. Yesterday, it, we, we talked about that Jesus was a Jewish man, but Simeon has said the light of revelation to the Gentiles has come as well, as well as the promised Messiah yes. to the people of Israel. Yes. That, the next line, um, the next line goes on with something you just, you just got done talking about when you said uh, Mary pondered a lot of things in her heart. Well, in this situation, they're both amazed. Uh, I love that it says his father and mother we're clearly referring to Joseph and Mary here, even though we know how Jesus is born of a virgin and, you know, all of those things. The idea here is his father and mother, Joseph and Mary, are amazed at the things which are being said about him. Now, I suppose we could look at that a couple of ways. We could we could look at it that Simeon somehow revealed a an, a dimension, an idea of Jesus's ministry that Mary and Joseph weren't aware of. Maybe. I, I don't really see it that way. Um, I think you could also see it that that this is the natural reaction of supernatural uh, experiences of divine revelation that comes when you witness the fulfillment of God's promise. So they they were living this promise walking this promise out, and all of a sudden, this guy, Simeon, in the temple goes, this is true, mm-hmm. and this is the salvation of Israel. You kind of you kind of put it, or I kind of put it into the perspective that, into the image that uh, Joseph and Mary are going, whoa, this is, this is more true than we understand. This is, this is real. Mm-hmm. This is really real here. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think this shows that while... Joseph and Mary certainly were given a lot, uh, uh, and and I think I think their understanding, but they were still just as human as you and I, and I think just like uh, we have talked about many times, we we ask God, we pray to God for something, and when it and when it happens, we're, we are amazed by it. Now, many times we're amazed by it from the fact that we think it may be impossible. But many times we're just amazed that God did something for us. Yes. I think the amazement here on their end is like this is way bigger than we can imagine. When we do something, when we see something that God does that's far bigger than our minds can comprehend, it, it's it's I I am amazed at yeah. that. The natural and God order does, yes. is amazement. And God does that on a daily basis for Absolutely. me. Gives me more than I can comprehend. How about thoughts on Anna, the prophetess? You oh my! Any thoughts there. Yeah, Anna. She, uh, uh, wow, someone that was devoted to the service of the Lord, and uh, she she had evidently had uh, her husband had died, and and uh, uh, and she was a widow, and says she was at the age of eighty four. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. 
there was a devotion there to God, and that that is that we just don't see. We just don't see a lot. There are a lot of lot of stories like this, but this is an amazing piece. This is a woman who was a widow who probably had to be taken care of through what she did there. She she just it seemingly she was there every day, every night, and and serving God. Couple of observations on that. The the first would be. Um, this this idea of genuine devotion. The scriptures talk about praying without ceasing, or it talks about persistent prayer. And the term that comes to mind when I think of Anna is she's a case study of those things. Case yes. study, right? She. This is we have the concepts elsewhere in scripture, but then when we look at Anna's life, we see the practical outplay of that. Um, just geeky details on this. You notice that it says she never left the the temple serving night and day. Yeah. Why is it put night and day? Because that's how their days worked. That it yes. started in yes. the evening, night, and day the next day, and then um, and then she she participates in fasting and prayers. Now this is not interpreted literally that she never left the temple. It was known that women uh, did not stay in the temple throughout the night or things like that. And so it was It was more akin to the idea, um, I think I read a, a commentary at one place that said it's more akin to somebody saying, man, she's at church all the time. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's that point, right? And <laughs> yeah. so Anna was that lady. She was, you know, mm-hmm. she was the lady who was at church all the time. Mm-hmm. And she all, and the, the other thing that I think is notable about her at the second half of 38, it says, uh, she well, let's just read all of thirty and that, uh, uh, all of uh, thirty eight. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God. And then she does something else that is that that happens as she goes, and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When someone came up and said, "Hey, you know, here we're just we're trying to figure out when the consolation of Israel is going to happen," and I can just see it. I this is conje- conjecture, but I, I, it's happened, and I know when it happened, and I saw, I saw him, and I, I can just imagine. It kind of gives me goosebumps to think yes. about Anna telling people it has happened. He's here. It is. It is also a verse that really needs to weigh in to the modern argument of who proclaims the gospel. The truth is, everybody who's a believer proclaims the gospel. Sure, we can have discussions and we ought to have discussions about who leads the church. We should and ought to have discussions about pastoral ministry and what that looks like according to the Bible. But what we see here emphatically clear is that Anna this woman, this prophetess, she continued to speak of Jesus to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So if somebody came up and said, man, I can't wait till the Messiah comes or I I want to know what God is doing. She's going, I've met him. His name is Jesus. Here's who he is. Is You know, this is gospel ministry right here. She's declaring this, sharing this with everybody she comes in contact with. Powerful. Yeah, it's great stuff. And then, and then, and then an interesting piece there again, Luke goes into his detail, detail oriented mode in verse uh, 39. He said, and he, he notes, uh, and it's important note, when they, and he's talking about Joseph and Mary, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. So once again, we, we've talked about this. They were Jews, and they believed in following 
uh, all of the laws of God. And, and they did that. And they did that uh, to, uh, to, the, uh, to uh, uh, every detail. So, and, and there again, Luke explains that that's what, the, that, that's what they did. I, they, they talk about the child. They call him the child, or Luke mm-hmm. calls him the child, continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. I, that's an interesting. That's an interesting statement. Uh, that's. Uh, it's almost like a well, no duh kind of a statement. <laughs> he was, he was yes. God. We we see very clearly uh, the humanity of God. So we see this him him being fully man and fully God because that term increasing in wisdom. Uh, literally translates to becoming full of wisdom. Mm. Um, this is often referred to as the silent years of Jesus. You know, we 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 have no mm. idea what what happens after twelve, and then all the way up to his public ministry. But what we do know here is that he was increasing in his wisdom. He was growing in grace, uh, and the grace of God was upon him. Now we get into. We get into this strange transit. I suppose this is the transition into the silent years because we have Jesus, um, well, being lost mm-hmm. by his mom and dad, which which is uh, you know not to their credit. So uh, we both joke about the Michael Junior yeah, yeah. thing. It's great. You lost the the you savior. Lost the savior. Can you send us a new one? Yeah. No. Uh, Today his picture it. would have been on a milk carton yes, or on exactly. Facebook. So. Let's start at verse 41. He says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at uh, at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up uh, they went up there according to the custom of the feasts. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, uh, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, a couple of things here. Number one, uh, at 13 was the point in Jewish law or Jewish uh, Jewish understanding when adhering to the law was necessary. It was required mm-hmm. at 13. In modern Jewish ideas, this is what we would call a bar mitzvah mm-hmm. or something, a coming of age. So what we're dealing with here is he was growing in wisdom up to this point. He's 12. And even before a quote-unquote coming of age... Jesus is already about his father's business. He's, he's about what his father wants him to do. So I think that that's an important uh, thing to remember in all of this. But when it says that they, they returned back and Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, there's some people that conjecture Jesus is being disobedient to his parents or something like this. But this is to read the scripture in a very strange way mm-hmm. and in an almost crazy literal fashion where we don't see a command, we don't see anything like this. Um, He just simply stays behind because he has this mission that he's on even from the age of 12. Although we have that, that gap, that silent, those silent years from 12 to public ministry, it seems he makes it known He's supposed to be about his father's business, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. really interesting. And it's amazing that, that it says that, that Mary and Mary and Joseph end up backtracking and going back and trying to find him. And after three days, uh, they find him, verse 46, says they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. It would, it would be interesting uh, to, to, to know, or I, there's one of these days maybe we'll know that, not, not in this life, but it would be interesting to know what those questions and answers were because 
it says, Luke says, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So he was obviously giving some answers as well as asking questions, as they've clearly said. But it would be interesting to see what it was that that how that conversation went yeah, yeah. with a twelve to thirteen year old boy. Absolutely. So uh, just a just a kind of a back step for me. Again, this is this is things that you and I like. This is the geeky stuff. Number one, it says that they were in a caravan. Mm-hmm. So there's oftentimes they traveled in these caravans just for safety's sake and and. And other reasons, right? And so they travel in these caravans. So you can kind of understand how Jesus might be overlooked because there's a there's a high likelihood he's with the other kids. This is, you know, he's 12. He's with the other kids. They go on a day's journey before they even realize he's mm-hmm. gone. A day's journey, according to historians, is somewhere around, I think, I read somewhere it was it's around 25 miles that they would travel in a day. Uh, so they would go 25 miles away. They find out Jesus is gone. They have to travel 25 miles back in this caravan. And then it's not even till the next day that they actually find Jesus. So there's some there's some worry, I think, that would probably take place. Well, if, if it were me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And Mary and Joseph are human beings just like we are. So, so we can see that they're worried. So the parents are unaware that he's gone. Um, He's supposed to be in the caravan. They go a day's journey, 25 miles. They come back, and then they begin to look for him, and they find him in the temple. Now, there's this is an interesting thought here, that there are two words that Luke uses for temple in this chapter, and um, or in his writings, and one means the inner courts, and one means the temple surrounding the the you know the outer courts where people are discussing and talking, or where the money changers might be, or things mm-hmm. like this. And when he says that they found him in the temple, he was in the outer courts. He's not. Luke is very astute. We talked about his detail-oriented nature. Luke is very astute. He knows the term that needs to be used if he means that Jesus was in the inner courts. He was not in the inner courts. He was in the outer courts, and he's talking to these these teachers and these different people. Uh, Another thing is that it doesn't say, Luke, again, being a detailed person, he doesn't say he was sitting in the midst of the teachers of the law or the scribes and the Pharisees. It simply is general. He was sitting in the midst of the teachers. So there's nothing necessarily hostile about these mm-hmm, teachers. Mm-hmm. And I think we actually see that when we when we discover they're listening to this mm-hmm. 12-year-old boy and they're amazed at his understanding. So here's the connection of why he's it's important to see that he's in the outer courts. Jesus, in a second, we're going to see why he had to stay behind or his answer to his mom and dad after they're kind of freaking out here. Um, His answer is that he had to be about his father's business. And his father's business, as we've learned from both videos from the Bible Project and as we, we learn from the whole of the gospel, is that Jesus has come for the the sinner. He's come for the lost. He's come for the people who are eager to hear the answer. Mm-hmm. He didn't come to jump into the inside of the temple. And, and here's my view of this. And I'd love to hear people's thoughts on it. I'd love to have lots of discussion about this one. And that is the reason I don't believe Paul u- or Luke uses the term the inner courts for temple here is because being about his father's business was not about him being in a temple that he already, God has already said, I don't dwell in temples made by human hands. 
I'm, I dwell in temples made by me. And so it would really not make any sense for Jesus to say, I have to be in the temple, which is going to get us to an interpretation question here in just a second on what Jesus's response is. But I want to hear your thoughts. Sure. No, I, I, I think you're right. I think it there again, we've talked about how that Jesus came to kind of turn the system upside down and those that were those that were the least would become the greatest in his kingdom. And, and so this was another uh, uh, reiteration of, of that or, or something or something that displays that that's what he was doing. Uh, it is interesting that, uh, again, I, I, I think that Joseph and Mary showed their humanness and their concern for their son uh, with when, yeah, with it, when they said to him, his mother Mary says uh, to him, "Son, why have you treated us this way?" Yeah, this is a mom statement. Absolutely, completely is, and and she is, and I, I can imagine being so worried. You're worried sick over your son, and 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 it does seem it would seem that 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 would be the appropriate response for a mother to say, "Why have you done this? Well, yeah. you've treated us this way. We've been worried sick about you." But his answer is really where we have to start to get that he's not being defiant to his parents. Um, He's not challenging them in Mm -hmm. any way. Even in his response, he's not saying, you know, uh, you don't know anything. I don't care. He's not the quintessential rebellious child. That's, That's not what we're dealing with. He's actually sinless here. So it's really important for us to grasp that and wrap our minds around it. So, so here's, here's the way I'm seeing it. First of all, his mom says a mom statement, son, why have you treated us this way? I think all of us have heard our moms (laughs) say that to us at one point. I am as a father, as a, as a father who wants to live by biblical standards, I am astounded that all the questioning comes from the mother. From the mother, his, yes. his father doesn't say anything. He act, she says, "Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you." Um, this correction or this this questioning is coming from a mom. We Joseph is uniquely silent yes. here. Um, yes. uh, we know what Joseph was thinking because she includes him. We were anxiously looking for you. We were anxious about this. But the mom does all the talking here. So that's an interesting thing. I don't think we should derive anything from parenting styles about this. But <laughs> I'm simply saying that's that's a pretty interesting observation. And then Jesus responds and he says, why is it that you were looking for me? Now, he's not saying, why do you care? about yeah, me. Right. That would be the defiance of a child. What do you care? That that sounds like a modern kid. He says, "Why is it that you were looking for me? Hold on, let me qualify with another question. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house?" I want to read this really quick. This is a an excerpt from uh from George MacDonald's book, The Hope of the Gospel, which was written over 100 years ago. Uh, He said, there is no noun in the Greek, and the article, the, is in the plural. To translate it as literally as it can be translated, making of it an English sentence, the saying says this, uh, says this, why uh, uh, wist ye not that I must be, don't you know, in other words, Old English, don't you know that I must be in the things of my father? 
don't you know that I must be in the things of my father? Literally translated is, don't you know that I must be in the, there's no word here, there's no noun, of my father. So every translation has added a noun to make sense of it. Some say business, some say house. I actually believe that the King James has it best, which is the business of my father. Again, for this important reason, Jesus is not saying, don't you know I need to be in the temple? That's where God dwells. Well, later he's going to say that's not where God dwells, in not the human temple. It's going to be in the temple that God makes is where God dwells. So it wouldn't make sense for Jesus to say, don't you know I need to be in the temple? But instead he's saying, don't you know I need to be about my father's business? Even the NASB, I believe, gets it wrong. They come with a note in the NASB that the word house literally translates in the affairs of my father. So why do we attach temple to this? Here's, here's why I think we've attached temple to it. Because that's where he was found physically. Correct, yes. That doesn't mean that's what he meant. Because what he said was, I've got to be about the affairs of my father. Now, what was he doing? He was answering questions. Yes. He was dealing with the real tough stuff of that day. And where was he? In the temple. He was in the outer courts. This is where the people would be that couldn't get past the money changers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is this. He's in with the people. I think there's something to be said about those observations. No, yeah, no doubt. And I, it is it it, it is an interesting thought because. As we see that it, they said Luke uh, says that they did not understand the statement that he had made to them. They didn't get exactly what he was saying, and in a strange way, that gives that that to me that gives me hope because there again, these were humans just like you and I, and they were standing in front of that had their son who. Both of them knew that he was sent by God. They knew his role, and and as you said, they were they cared for him. Uh, but when he was in the mode of the savior of the world, and I think that was the mode that was there at, in some sense, they they too missed exactly yes. what he was doing. Two other pieces of kind of confirmation. It, for me, as, as I'm reasoning with this, um, two points of confirmation that make me believe that translating my father's house or the temple is a really bad noun to interject there. I just think it's a bad mm-hmm. thing to interject. The reason for that is, number one, these are Jewish people. Correct. Okay? Yeah. The very first place that they go to look is not the temple. How do I know that? The previous verse says, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have been looking for him. They would have looked for him. They would have they would have gone straight to the temple. They didn't think they didn't think anything of him being in the temple. So why use that term? Mm-hmm. And then the second thing that confirms this is that they said they didn't understand the statement. If you're talking to a Jewish people and you say, "Don't you know that I have to be in my father's house?" Most Jewish people would go, "Oh, the temple, duh." Yeah. They didn't understand his statement because it didn't mean what we've translated it to mean. So when he says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's business, in my father's affairs? They're sitting there thinking, what is that? 
Mm-hmm. What is that? We don't even know what that means. That's why, in my opinion, they are, they are saying this didn't make sense to them. So then verse 51 and 52 close this out and say he went down with them and he came to Nazareth. And I love this. He continued in subjection to yes. them. He's a, he's a good Jewish boy. He loves them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. We're back to Mary's amazement, yes. right? And then verse 52, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in the favor with God and men. This guy, this this savior, this man who nobody understands is now increasing in his favor mm-hmm. with everybody around him. I, I think this the, the, those last few lines, and especially, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. I think about the uh, the very near coming heartbreak that Mary is going to have when she sees Jesus on the cross Absolutely. and all of those things that he did. She's had, I, I can imagine that she has... All of these times that we read that she pondered these things in her heart and those things that she didn't understand, I, I am sure that just like any mother would be, you see your son killed, she was, she was sorrowful, obviously, but, but there was so much more. And I think she, at a point, had to realize that this was not just my son, but it was the, it was the Savior of the world, the one that was promised to come. Yes. And uh, so... That's yeah. powerful. Verse 35, uh, back all the way up at verse 35, confirms it that uh, that Simeon's prophetic word to Mary yes. was that a sword will pierce even your own soul. Obviously, we know he's looking, this prophetic word is looking to the crucifixion of Christ, and she's going to feel this to the end that thoughts, uh, that the thoughts or thoughts thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Um, Mary is going to feel this. It's no wonder that she is treasuring all these things in her heart. She's trying to understand this, I think like any mother would. So this has been uh, a very fun conversation on Luke chapter 2. There are a ton of things still in this chapter. If you have questions or if you have thoughts on that, we want to hear from you. We want you to, uh, you know, post on Facebook. We want you to post in the Bible app uh, the questions that you're having. Talk to us about that. Send us an email at piercepointchurch at gmail.com because uh, I think the best way we can move forward is to continue this conversation. Hope you guys have a great day.